Tonight I'd like to talk about the relationship of our meditation practice to the establishment of peace in the world. Because there's a very direct connection between the two. When we look about the situation in the world today, the problems and difficulties and sufferings seem very obvious. Tremendous poverty and injustice and intolerance. Disease and warfare and violence. The threat of nuclear destruction. In every paper, in every news program, it's really filled with a catalog of the difficulties and problems that are in the world today. What are the causes? What are the conditions out of which these difficulties arise? If we want to come to an understanding of what will be the cause of world peace, we have to understand what are the causes for those conditions which obstruct that peace. The Buddha spoke in his teachings of three attitudes or tendencies of mind. In Pali, they're called papanja. These particular, these three attitudes or tendencies of mind are the root cause of that tendency towards expansionism or exploitation or domination. That expanding, grabbing quality in the mind. And it's these three attitudes or these three papanjas which are at the root of the suffering and difficulties in the world. Because they are the factors of mind which drive us to exploit or drive us to expand outward at the expense of others. The first of these attitudes or factors, the first of the papanjas, is craving. Craving is the factor of desire in the mind, wanting, always wanting more, never being satisfied. It's the opposite of contentment. It's the factor of greed. And it's a fairly obvious relationship, the relationship of greed in our minds to suffering for ourselves and other people. How does greed, how does desire, how does craving, how does the wanting mind arise? 
What's the cause of this factor which is so strong, so strongly conditioned? It's actually the driving force of samsara. It's what keeps this cycle of birth and death going. So it's a very tremendously conditioned force in our minds. What's the conditioning cause of it? Michelle spoke about it the other night to some extent of how feelings condition craving. Feelings condition more wanting. And feelings in this sense, it's in the Buddhist sense of the word. It means the quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness or neutrality that is arising in every moment of experience. Every sight and sound and smell and taste and sensation and thought and emotion. Every moment of experience, every object, there's a certain feeling to it. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or neither. It's because of pleasant feeling that the mind craves. It wants more. It's not satisfied. We either want to hold on to it, or we want it to increase, or we want the feelings that we don't yet have. It's because of this quality of pleasantness that the mind craves. And our society and culture continually is reinforcing the illusion that if we satisfy these cravings, these desires for more pleasant feeling, then we'll be happy. If we get this or that or do this or that, that will bring us happiness. It was exemplified quite appropriately for myself when I was teaching in Africa a couple of years ago and they had they have a brand of cookie there being a great lover of cookies the brand name of these cookies the name on the package was eat some more (laughs) eat some more cookies (laughs) one more one more will do it pleasant taste craving for more. Unpleasant feelings condition craving. It's not only pleasant ones. When we have unpleasant feelings, we desire, we want to get rid of them and replace them with the pleasant ones. And so that craving, wanting mind is fed by unpleasant feelings as well. Neutral feelings condition craving or wanting, either for more intense pleasure, we're not satisfied with the neutrality of it, or as our minds become subtle, a little more subtle, and we begin to appreciate the pleasure of neutral feelings, we crave more of those. Neutral feelings become a great pleasure, (laughs) which you will or perhaps have already come to appreciate. Oh, for a neutral feeling. (laughs) 
these feelings which are arising in every moment and which we cannot prevent from arising, when we are not mindful, when we're not attentive, these feelings are the cause, they are the condition for craving to arise. So we have to understand how that works. We have to understand how to deal with it skillfully. The second attitude of mind after craving, the second papanja, that is that, I haven't quite found the right word for that quality of mind Expansionist is the closest that I could come up with. The reaching out and grabbing, or dominating, or exploiting. The second factor of mind which gives rise to that quality is the factor of wrong view. What wrong view means is that view or understanding, misunderstanding, that there is an I, a self, a me, or a mine, some separate entity, some separate being, quite isolated from all other beings. The sense of I as a permanent entity, a permanent self, When we have this idea, which we all do to a very great extent, because like craving, it's a tremendously, deeply conditioned factor of mind. It's not a superficial, it's not a superficial difficulty. This belief in self, belief in I, when it's very strong in the mind, then we have to gratify it. We think our happiness lies in the gratification of this self, this I, or the aggrandizement of it. We have to defend it and protect it from other eyes, other selves. So we get into a situation of conflict in the world, conflict interpersonally, conflict between societies, because of this attachment and identification with a wrong view this view of self. And so much of the Buddha's teachings is geared to eradicating wrong view. So just as feelings are the conditioning cause of craving in the mind, what then is the conditioning cause of wrong view? Why does it arise? Why do we have this sense of self, this sense of I? Where does it come from? The conditioning cause of wrong view is the mental factor of perception. This gets pretty interesting, how perception creates wrong view, creates the sense of self. Just like feelings has a particularly Buddhist, there's a Buddhist definition, that is quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, so perception has a very, mm, very definite meaning. 
Perception in this sense has the characteristic of recognizing different objects by distinguishing distinguishing the aspects, the various aspects of its appearance. Whereas we see an object and we see the appearance of it and we can distinguish certain aspects of its appearance from other from other objects. And the function of perception then is to remember the distinguishing aspects of appearance. So memory is one of the key elements of this factor of perception. This factor plays a tremendously powerful role in keeping us bound to misunderstanding, to wrong view. Because perception, when it's very strong in the mind, and when mindfulness is not so strong, it obscures the true nature of phenomena. And we see only the appearance of things. We don't see, we don't understand the underlying reality. A few examples of perception, of how perception, when it's too strong in the mind, conditions wrong view. One example which we've used in different of the groups is the example, and it's very fresh in the mind coming from Burma. When you look at a line of ants from a distance, what do you see? You see just a line, one unbroken, unbroken black line if they're black ants, and white if they're white ants. When you look closely, of course, you see that the line is made up of individual ants walking in a row. You're sitting, and there's a pain that arises. When perception is stronger than mindfulness, we become aware of the appearance of it, the superficial appearance, and so we think or have the view that my knee hurts or my back hurts. When we look more closely, we see that there's no knee and no back, that actually there's searing, unbearable pain, burning, which is actually changing in every moment. Can you see the different levels of that? Perception sees a knee, sees a body. Perception sees a man, sees a woman. Perception sees a house, a car. And if that recognition is so strong, which it usually is with the objects that we're familiar with, and the mindfulness is not strong, we stay on that level of concept and we don't see the underlying reality. And so it creates this sense of someone, some self, some I. Another example. If you take a fire, you know, a torch, and you twirl it around very fast, what is perception going to see? 
Perception will see a circle of fire because that's the appearance of it. The circle will assume an entityship, as if the circle exists as an entity, instead of seeing that actually the circle is simply made up of that movement of fire very quickly. But it's so quick we can't see the movement. So we only see that circle. We take that to be the reality. Another example of how perception leads us to wrong view. When Upandita was here two, two summers ago, I was doing some walking meditation outside, just outside mm, this upper walking room after lunch. And I was feeling quite proud of myself for walking after lunch instead of napping after lunch. And I looked up at the window and I saw Upandita looking out the window. So then I felt even better. <laughs> because not only did I know, but he knew. <laughs> and I started walking very mindfully. <laughs> and I'm walking and walking, and every once in a while I'll glance up at the window, and he's still there looking. <laughs> And I'm walking and walking and walking, and I look up at the window. And after about half an hour, I couldn't understand why he was watching me for so long. I mean, it was quite good of me to be walking, but (laughs) it wasn't all that good. (laughs) And I looked up again, and it was a lampshade. How perception leads to wrong view. (laughs) So there's craving, there's there's wrong view. The third papanja, or the third attitude of mind, which leads to this expansionist tendency or exploitive tendency is the factor of conceit. And conceit is that attitude or factor of mind which compares oneself with others. I'm better than they are, I'm equal to them, I'm worse than they are. Again, you've probably noticed how strongly conditioned this comparing mind is in in our conditioning. This tendency to judge and compare about almost everything, about how we walk and how we sit and how much we eat, the whole range. So just as feelings condition craving and perception conditions wrong view, it's thought which conditions conceit. 
That is all the kinds of I am thoughts. I'm better than, or I'm worse than, or I've done this, or I haven't done this, or I've reached this attainment, or I haven't reached this attainment. All those kinds of I am thoughts condition the sense of superiority or inferiority. And again, it's fairly obvious the relationship of this factor of conceit of feeling superior or inferior to the problems in the world. Now, how many unskillful actions between individuals, between societies, arise out of these, out of this comparing? These are the three tendencies. There's craving, there's wrong view, and conceit. Those are the root causes of conflict and struggle in the world. How then is it possible to uproot them? Because unless these tendencies are uprooted, unless they're eliminated, unless they're removed, they are going to have their impact in how we behave with one another how we behave as individuals, as cultures, as societies. So how, how do we uproot them? What is the relationship of our practice to the purifying of the mind of these tendencies? When we are mindful, when the mindfulness is continuous, when we are noting correctly in each moment, then we are going from the level of concept of things, the appearance of things, to a direct experience of the reality. When we're mindful, when we're noting in each moment, then perception does not overshadow mindfulness. We don't get caught in the concept. We don't get caught in the content. We begin to see reality in our own experience, not as a theoretical construct. We we begin to understand the true nature of what this is about. Understand the true nature of our bodies and our minds. How do we experience our bodies? We experience them as a constellation of different elements, of heat and cold, of heaviness, of lightness, of movement, of vibration, of pressure. You may think that as you're sitting or walking and feeling these different sensations that nothing much is happening, and that they're not so interesting and it's not very important. But as I mentioned early on in the retreat, it's very difficult for you to be a judge or to evaluate your own practice. And most of your evaluations will be wrong. 
Because every time we're aware of a sensation and we're mindful of it and we note it, we see it as burning, as pressure, as tightness, as throbbing, as pulling. Those these very ordinary, simple, mundane kind of sensations. We are actually deepening our wisdom, deepening our insight into the nature of this body. At that time, we are not taking the body as I, as me, as mine. We're not taking it as some solid, unchanging entity. We are seeing it for what it actually is, which is a collection of elemental forces, elemental energies. But there is nothing solid, nothing unchanging in this. And in every moment of noting a sensation carefully and accurately and noticing what happens as we observe it, noticing how it changes, that is not an an insignificant moment. Because we are deconditioning this very strong tendency of wrong view in the mind. We're deconditioning craving in the mind. We begin to understand the nature of the mind. The body is composed of different elements which are always changing begin to see that the mind or consciousness is arising with every new object. There's consciousness of seeing, of hearing, of smelling, of tasting, of touching, of thinking. We can begin to experience how consciousness itself is arising and vanishing. There's not one knower, which is who I am. There is not one observer, there is not one witness which we often take there to be if we are not mindful of how the mind is arising, new with each object. We begin to understand the mental factors that arise with consciousness. That is, all those qualities of mind, of greed, of hatred, of anger, of love, of interest, of excitement, of mindfulness, of concentration of fear. When we're not mindful of them, when perception overshadows mindfulness, we take all of those mental factors, all of those mental qualities to be me, my anger or my sadness. I feel depressed. I feel elated. That's the wrong view coming out of perception. But when mindfulness is there, and it's not some extraordinary mindfulness, it's it's just the simple noting of what is arising in each moment, we begin to understand that all of these different emotions, all of these different mind states, are also just elements arising and passing away. They're the mental equivalents of the physical sensations. Just as the burning or the pulling or the tightness doesn't belong to anybody, it's just physical elements arising and changing, so to the mental elements, the mental factors don't belong to anybody.
begin to see that what we are calling self, what we are calling I, is a constellation of continually changing elements. Use an image to describe this, which you might be familiar with. You go up, you go outside at night and look up. And if you're at all familiar with the different constellations in the sky, perhaps you see the Big Dipper. And you look up and there it is, and it stands out very clearly. And if you're a little sophisticated with respect to the stars, you know that the Big Dipper, the one one line of the Big Dipper always points to the North Star. So then you can follow it and find where North is. And it becomes this great friend because you always know where you are, at least in relationship to North. You know, and it's, it's a friend up there. Whether you're here or in Burma, there's the Big Dipper. Okay, this is, this is the midterm exam. I want to ask you a question. Is there really a Big Dipper? <laughs> sort of like asking, is there Santa Claus? There's no Big Dipper up in the sky. Big Dipper is a concept. It's a mental construct which we have put onto a certain pattern. And yet, it's a very strong recognition in us. The perception of it is very strong. And when you go outside at night and look up, it's extremely difficult not to see the Big Dipper. Try, try going out and not seeing Big Dipper. It's difficult. Because our memory recognition perception factor unless it's balanced by a very strong mindfulness, will automatically will glom onto it, the concept of it. If it's that hard not to see Big Dipper, imagine how hard it is not to experience self or I. It takes a very strong mindfulness of all these different sensations that we have in the body, of all the different mental factors, of seeing how mind is arising with each new object. It takes a very strong mindfulness not to create the concept, not to create the construct of self, but rather to see it as a constellation of continually changing elements. We begin to see the relationship of all of these elements. It's not happening chaotically and it's not happening lawlessly. All of these elements of mind and body are interdependent, interrelated. And so we go from being mindful of what it is that's happening to how they're connected with one another. What is the relationship? And one of the great relationships to understand is the relationship of cause and effect. That because of the rising movement, 
the noting mind comes into being. If the rising movement did not arise, we could not note it. We could not be aware of it. It's because of the movement that we're able to note it. It's because we're lifting or moving or placing that we can note it. There's a relationship there between the body and the mind. We begin to see that intention is the cause and movement is the effect. The body and mind are working together interdependently because of feeling desire arises, craving arises. Begin to see how these elements of mind and body are unfolding according to certain laws. And again, this weakens the identification and attachment we have to the sense of self, or I as being the one who's directing this whole show. We see the different elements, we understand the interdependent relationship. We begin to see into the three characteristics of all of these elements, the physical elements, of the mental elements. And deepening insight into the three characteristics, each in turn weakens and removes one of the papanjas, one one of these tendencies of mind to expand. As we're observing the mind and body, different sensations, consciousness, mental factors, understanding the relationship between them, we begin to refine our awareness of the fact that they're all arising and vanishing in each moment. And as our awareness gets sharper, the momentariness of phenomena becomes more and more clear. Begin to see that in any movement, just as in watching the row of ants, a movement is not an unbroken, not an unbroken phenomena, but a movement is made up of white ants. It's made up of tiny little segments which when we observe carefully, we begin to see. Begin to see that thoughts and feelings and images and all the sensations are momentary. They're arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. And it's this insight which uproots and removes that factor of conceit. How can we be conceited? How can this thought of I am this or I am that or I've attained this or I've done that? Where's the power of that thought if we see that the very thought is simply a blip in the mind, simply arising and vanishing in the instant? It has no ground, it has no power. And so this factor of conceit which causes so much conflict in the world is eliminated. As our insight into impermanence deepens, 
we begin to get a more profound understanding of dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned, conditioned objects. Now, for so much of our lives, we're under the illusion or live in the ignorance that if only something in particular happened, whether it's an event or a person or an object or whatever, that if that happened, if we could do that, if we could experience that, then it would be fulfilling, then our lives would be fulfilled. But someplace in us we all know better than that. Because we've all had so much and done so much and experienced so much. We begin to see that because everything is changing all the time, in every moment, there's nothing which is capable of giving that kind of completion. We, we begin to experience the dukkha of painful sensation. We begin to experience the dukkha of pleasant sensation. The fact that it doesn't last, that it's there for a moment and it's gone, and then we're left wanting more. It's the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned feelings. That these conditioned feelings of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality are not going to satisfy us because they're vanishing in each moment. And as we understand this on a deeper and deeper level, it has the wonderful effect of freeing the mind from craving. We no longer are driven by this force of craving or wanting or desiring in the mind because we know that it cannot be satisfied. It does not fulfill its promises. We see the impermanence, we understand the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness. We understand the anatta, or selflessness, of phenomena. And we observe over and over again how things arise and pass away, not subject to our control. Can you sit here and say, thoughts don't come, pain go away, bliss fill my body. (laughs) I can't do it because things are not subject to our control. There are laws, there are causes, there are conditions for things arising. If the conditions are there, they arise. If the conditions are not there, they pass away. It's all a selfless process. It's an impersonal process that doesn't belong to anybody. There's no one behind it, to whom it is happening. What we call ourselves, what we call I or me or ego, is this changing process, is this process of changing elements. As we understand this on deeper and deeper levels, then the tendency of wrong view doesn't arise. When craving 
and conceit and wrong view are reduced and finally purified in our minds, we come to a place of peace in ourselves. Our relationships become a situation of peace. You might think that, well, that's fine for us. Maybe it's fine for the people around us. But what kind of effect does this have in the world? It's a very nice story. True, true story, which again, many of you may have read. It's of the hundredth, it's called the hundredth monkey. A very interesting phenomenon. There were a group of monkeys living on some island in Japan. And there were some potatoes, some kind of wild potatoes, you know, in the sand or on the, on the shore. And the monkeys would dig up the potatoes and eat them, to start to eat them, but not like it because of the sand. And finally, some of the younger monkeys, the children, just one day started to wash these potatoes in the water and then eat it. Because then they liked it and they started eating a lot. And then they taught their parents. You know, the parents saw the children doing it. This went on for some time. One by one, the older monkeys in this I don't know what you call it, a tribe, a troop, or something, monkeys. One by one, uh, they started to learn. They learned this by watching the others. Over a period of time, eventually, 99 monkeys were all doing this, washing their potatoes first and then eating them. And then one day, one more monkey, the hundredth monkey, started to do it. And at that time, it was observed that monkeys on distant islands also started washing their potatoes. That there was some kind of collective force, collective energy, collective karma. When it reached a certain point, and spread out by itself, just as a natural law. You may be the hundredth yogi. <laughs> there is a very powerful effect. You know, it's not just for ourselves that we practice. It is for ourselves and it is for everyone else as well. Because as we free our minds from craving and wrong view and conceit, when we reduce this this tendency, this attitude of mind to expand and grab and take and exploit. When we can purify our own minds of these tendencies, we establish peace in ourselves and it becomes a force of peace in the world. So every moment of mindfulness is exceedingly important. Because every moment of mindfulness, of noting, is actually doing this work of purification.
you have any questions, please? It's a tremendously appropriate and skillful and inspiring reflection. necessarily continue to have the concept of me, although the sensation of burning may be there for some time. There is a pattern to this constellation of elements. It's not by saying that they're selfless, is not to say that there's not a relationship um, between them. Just like by saying there's no Big Dipper, doesn't mean that all the stars in that constellation go flying off in different directions. The stars remain there in a certain pattern, and it's precisely that pattern which gives rise to the recognition, which gives rise to the concept of Big Dipper. Exactly the same way, there is a pattern, and it's a lawful pattern. One of the patterns, well, actually, there's a whole, there's a whole book of, in the Buddhist psychology. It's called the Book of Relations, which basically describes the laws governing the pattern of elements, which we recognize as a pattern and then call it man or Joseph or being or self. So it's not that the elements go flying apart. It's that there is no, well, two aspects. There's no unchanging core or kernel to them. All that there is are elements in relationship to one another. They don't belong to anybody. See, it's the difference between thinking, I have a body, postulating a sense of someone who has this, that's very different. That conception is very different than, than becoming aware that in each moment there's knowing and an object. Knowing and an object. There's knowing of heat, knowing of cold. And in each moment that's arising and vanishing. That's a very different level of understanding than I have a body or that I'm angry. Right? Because it doesn't posit a self, an I, an entity. Rather, we see that there's merely the arising and vanishing of elements, but a lawful arising and vanishing, a patterned one. Uh, The question is a very important one, because (laughs) it is exactly that pattern 
which through our perception of it, remember, perception is that factor of mind which recognizes the distinguishing characteristics. So what makes this pattern different than that pattern? We see that, we recognize it. When perception is stronger than mindfulness, the memory of this pattern creates the wrong view that this is a man, this is self, this is I. Whereas when we're mindful of the actual experience, what is there? This pressure on the butt and this color coming through the eye and sound coming through the ear. And so we want to go from the level of appearance and concept to the level of actual direct experience. Because that's when we begin to see those three characteristics. Now again, just to to say again, because I know how easy it is to forget when one is in the middle of practice, that this is the development of wisdom and insight, which is why every moment that you are aware of what is actually happening is not insignificant because it's like a radical change of level from our usual level of understanding. So don't underestimate or undervalue the importance of noting burning, burning, or hearing, hearing, or seeing, seeing. It's tremendously important because it's bringing us to the level of what is actually there. And in that sense, purifying the mind of these three tendencies, the papandras. Does perception work with mental factors as well? In other words, do we... Is that when you talk about the sense of self, is that a perception... Of, of an appearance of a form in the same way of appearance of colors. Could you say that once again? I, I'm not sure I understand perception. I understand it on a physical level mm-hmm. where I can see brown and there's a wall or something. Does it work in, with mental factors as well? Or is there, are there constituent mm. reducible elements of the mental factors like there are reducible physical constituents of, of, of a burning knee? Well, mm, I'm not sure I can answer that completely because uh, my understanding of the subtleties of perception is rather limited. This basically is what's fresh off the press. (laughs) As I understand it, it gets passed on. Um, But for example it could work the same way with a mental image. And as I said the other night in answer to a question, it's like how often do we take our thoughts to be the reality? When we're not mindful of our thought, we get lost in the content. So a thought of our mother is not our mother. Yet if there's an image or a form there, the perception of that 
if there's not mindfulness. We see the perception, we get lost in the content, the story, not seeing that it is only an image or only a thought. For more than that, you have to come back next year. (laughs) (laughs) It was very, this, this whole understanding of how perception creates a wrong view is really, uh, it was very interesting to me as Upandita explained it. It was just like a whole new way of understanding how this concept of self is conditioned in our minds because of the strong power of recognition of appearance when that, when that power is much stronger than the mindfulness of how things actually are happening. And so it just, it, it really caught my interest to see how this, how this concept of self comes about. Because it's so strong. It's so strong in our minds. It's tremendously helpful, and um, it's an integral part of our practice in the larger sense. There is going to be um, a whole talk about different levels of defilements in the mind and what kinds of actions purify what levels, which is pretty much a direct answer, will be a direct answer to your question. Because different kinds of practices purify different levels of defilements. And just the ones you mentioned, generosity and giving and restraint and the meditation practice. Oh, as you say, I did not mean at all to suggest that we should attempt, which is impossible anyway, to do without perception. Actually, perception is one of the common factors of mind, which means that it arises with every moment of consciousness. It's a question of balance. And so, it's when perception overshadows the other factors. That's when it gives rise to wrong view. But perception also can operate in balance with mindfulness in the service of wisdom. So it's just the imbalance which has to be corrected. There are differences which exist, but when you are perceiving things on the momentary level, they don't 
proliferate into a structure of self which is then being compared to some to something else or someone else so for example there's a certain sensation of heat in the body and you're noticing heat and you're noticing just how it's changing all the time and it's true maybe somebody somebody sitting next to you is experiencing greater heat or lesser heat but if you're simply mindful burning 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 and you see that it's constantly dissolving there's no sense what happens is that that sensation of burning does not give rise to a sense of self somebody having it which could then be compared to somebody else's superstructure that was built over the sensation did that come out clear <laughs> I mean, the idea was clear in my mind but in other words when you when you are on the level of seeing things dissolving continually who is there to be compared with anybody else because everything is dissolving thought and sensation and feeling and sound and sight and it's also instantaneous there's no possibility to create what i'm calling this superstructure of self on top of that experience because the experience is so momentary and because we don't build the superstructure of i on top of the direct moment of experience the comparing of i to other doesn't arise
Kennedy said that the different packages that each of us are contain different kinds of, of habitual tendencies. Yes. Or, or, and I, I think that might be more what the question was, that there are real... Yes, th- there are definitely differences. And it's a question of whether... we create from our experience of the differences, whether we build on that a sense that the differences belong to anybody or see that everything is just... And it's true that that this pattern of... is different than that pattern of this, this, this. But things are happening so quickly There's no when when that perception of the rapidity of change is there. There's no opportunity for. There's no opportunity for the comparing mind uh, to arise, because the comparing mind comes out of this sense of I, this sense of self, which we build on top of experience. That's what's compared. You know, but, but in this momentariness of phenomena, there's, there's no possibility of that arising. It can arise, because it, even if it arose, it would be gone in the moment. That's why the, the insight into impermanence is so key, because it really... Um, it purifies the mind of conceit, of comparing. I mean, a thought arises, you know, I'm better than, or I'm worse than. <laughs> in the instant, in the instant it's gone. It doesn't refer to anybody. When we see impermanence, when we really understand it, it purifies the mind of craving, because somebody, <laughs> somebody came into an interview today with a a wonderful insight. And basically, it was it was into impermanence and dukkha and the relationship of them. Because she had been sitting with the thought of a cheese sandwich and how nice it would be to have this nice cheese sandwich, and realizing. Now, even if I had this cheese sandwich, in a few minutes it would be gone, and then what? Would that really, would that really do it? Of course, it's obvious. You know, when we see that things are just disappearing in every moment, the craving is the craving is eliminated. Conceit, craving, wrong view, all from this mindfulness in each moment. So the practice is very deep and very transforming. So, thank you. Carry on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostdog.org slash donate.